Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of Byzantium, episode 185. Winning the election. Last time we began Act 2 of our century of narrative. We introduced the people-pleasing Emperor Constantine IX, who was immediately faced by a rebellion from his own troops and an invasion by a fleet of Rus ships. Events are starting to move very quickly, so let's just reorient ourselves for a moment. Ah deep breath. Let's head back to Easter 1042. Michael V is on the throne, and it looks like this new Paphlagonian dynasty is going to rule the empire while Zoe grows old in the shadows. A week later, Michael is overthrown by the crowds after trying to hasten Zoe's exit from the stage, and three months after that, Constantine Monomachos takes over the vacated throne. Our last episode covered the next year, 1043. The rebel General George Maniakis landed at Dyrrhachium in February and was killed the following month in battle with imperial forces. Then word arrived that the Rus were on their way and the army and fleet had to be ready by June for what was a very bloody confrontation in the Black Sea. Today's episode will cover the next four years of military affairs, with activity in East and West. Then, next episode, we will look at domestic matters. We begin in Armenia, where developments have been taking place off-screen. Back in episode 157, you may remember various Armenian leaders lining up in the headmaster's office and handing their kingdoms over to Basil II. The Romans were pushing their boundaries forward, and many of the leading men of Armenia exchanged their independence for lands and titles in Byzantium. One of those men was Sumbat III, nominal king of Armenia and ruler of the largest city in the mountains, Ani. Ani had become the home of the kings of Armenia in 961, and the head of the Armenian church had moved there 30 years after that. Annexing it was a natural part of Roman plans to dominate the region. Sumbat III had agreed with Basil to hand over his kingdom upon his death, 
which came to pass in 1041. But with Roman troops busy elsewhere, the locals decided to choose a successor and carry on as usual. Monomachos pursued a diplomatic solution during 1043, but the new ruler, Gagic II, refused to surrender Annie. He offered his formal submission, but wanted to be left as an independent ruler. A Roman honour would not allow this, apparently, and so in 1044 the emperor ordered troops in to take the city by force. The dukes of Iberia, Michael Iacetes, led the operation and called on the emir of nearby Devin to join the attack. Annie was a well-fortified city and could not easily be captured, but the Romans and Arabs each took supporting fortresses and put serious pressure on the Armenians. Well aware of what the Byzantines had done to Theodosiopolis and Melitene, Gagic decided to accept the deal that his uncle had made twenty years earlier. He travelled to Constantinople, formally relinquished his kingship, and received lands and titles from Monomachos. The residents of Ani still refused the Romans' entry, but further resistance was abandoned early the next year. Iacetes entered the gates in early 1045 and made Ani the headquarters of Roman administration in the region. Most of Armenia was now in Roman hands, and the borders of the empire moved ever further east. More local lords offered their own lands to the authorities in exchange for military commands or retirement villas in Anatolia. And eventually the Armenian religious establishment would also migrate west. If we ignore the impending arrival of the Seljuks, it's interesting to ponder what the future of this region might have looked like. The centre of Armenian culture was certainly shifting westwards along with its wealthiest families. Ignoring the Seljuks also presents quite a different picture of Byzantium, doesn't it? Rather than heading into decline, here we are 20 years after Basil's death and the Roman tentacles extend ever further into the mountains. The regional dominance of the empire was as strong as it had ever been, as far as contemporaries were concerned. And this was not a passive process. Not only did the Romans aggressively press their claims to land that they'd been promised, but they also turned on their own allies afterwards. As best we can tell, the Arabs of Devin had been told that they could keep the forts that they'd taken from the Armenians. But after Ani was occupied, Iacetes began campaigning against the Saracens. There's obviously a huge amount we don't know about exactly what was going on, but from a distance it looks like the Romans were happy to break informal promises to make sure that these key fortresses were secure in their hands. And if that meant angering an Arab ally, just as they'd done at Edessa, then so be it. This imperial bullying got its comeuppance soon afterwards. Iacetes moved against Devin itself to cow the emir. But Abu al-Aswar was too smart for the Romans on this occasion. He flooded the plain outside his city to slow their advance. Taking this as a sign of fear, the Byzantines marched in without due care and attention. 
Arab troops were secreted about the gardens and vineyards outside the city, and when imperial soldiers were near, they popped up and opened fire with a volley of arrows. This surprise attack caused panic, and the Romans routed. The muddy conditions were terrible for cavalry trying to move quickly, and many died scrambling out of the quagmire. The eastern armies had learnt their lesson and moved on to besieging the forts near Annie more carefully, one by one. At one end of the empire, then, the legacy of Basil II seemed as strong as ever. At the other, an entire frontier was about to fall apart. As you know, the Romans had eliminated the Bulgarian state, which had once occupied the lands between the Hemus Mountains and the River Danube. As I explained when urging you not to believe your maps, the Roman occupation in this area was light. They concentrated forces on the trading towns of the river and a few key forts of the interior. The inadequacy of these defences was brutally exposed between 1032 and 36, as we covered a few episodes ago. The Pechenegs crossed the frozen Danube and ravaged the whole region with impunity. The Roman response to these disasters was to pay more money to Pechenegg chieftains and flood the Danube markets with coins and goods to satisfy the needs of the nomads so that they wouldn't have to raid. The fact that that was the Roman response, as opposed to, say, moving more soldiers to the area, tells you a lot about the reality on the ground. The lands between the Hemus and the Danube were not suitable for large farming communities. The food and tax-producing population necessary to sustain a standing army just wasn't there. So instead, Byzantine officials cultivated the wilderness. Better to leave as much of the land empty as possible so that raiders would have a harder time sustaining themselves. Essentially, then, the Romans accepted that they couldn't hold the Danube as a frontier. They would try their best to divert their enemies, but their real defences lay behind the Hemus Mountains. With that in mind, perhaps the following events will make more sense. In 1046, word came that about 20,000 Pechenegs had arrived at the river and were asking permission to cross and settle permanently within the empire. The steppe was in the middle of one of its convulsions, a Turkic confederation that we might read as the Ogres, were slowly moving west, and the pressure was mounting on the Pechenegs, who, as you know, had reached the end of their western movement, situated as they were up against the Carpathian Mountains. The leading chief of the Pechenegs was known to the Byzantines as Tyrak. Tyrak was challenged for overall leadership by a minor chief that we know as Kegan. Kegan had defeated the Ogres in battle, and now tried to wrest control of the whole Pechenegg confederation from Tyrak. 
But Kagan lost this struggle, and so with nowhere to go, he led his followers, men, women, and children, with all their possessions, to the Danube, and asked to be allowed into the empire. If this all sounds terribly familiar, then yes, it does indeed echo loudly the movement of the Goths back in the 4th century. And though the results won't be quite so disastrous, they won't be good for the Romans. So, this request for asylum was sent on to Constantinople, where the emperor accepted it. Yes, he said, please do cross over and join the empire. He sent boats in return, filled with provisions for the refugees, and asked Kegan to come and see him. The chief did as he was asked, was welcomed warmly at the capital, was baptised and put on the payroll. He was then given command of three forts, which lay along the Danube, and sent back to settle his people there. We are not told why this decision was made. We're not told what the Romans in general really thought about this, or what Monomachos's role specifically was in making this choice. But let's just reason it out for a moment. I've given you the background, so it shouldn't be that shocking that the Romans were interested in bringing a foreign people into the empire. After all, they weren't really making use of the lands between the Hemus and the river. Now, to be clear, people did live there, uh, the former Bulgarian peasantry, some of the Vlach people, even some Roman communities, but they just didn't live in large enough concentrations to be strategically important. So, there was land going spare. Why not settle people on it? Given Monomachos's relative inexperience, I think we can assume that he was advised that this was a good idea. So there must have been plenty of people in the bureaucracy and the army who were in favour. This wasn't just the emperor's whim. And the logic must have been, who better to defend us from the Pechenegs than other Pechenegs? Now, I imagine some of you are pointing out the obvious counter-argument that these are not settled people. They do not live by our rules. In fact, a decade ago, some of them were dragging Roman citizens off into slavery. So why on earth would you let them live freely inside the boundaries of the empire and give them forts to operate from? Surely you're just setting yourself up for a horrible fall when these savages turn on us and start raiding again. And we can only surmise what the counter-counter-arguments were, but it's worth bearing in mind three things. One, this was a classic Roman practice going back centuries. Divide and rule. Turn the Pechenegs against their own, and they'll be too busy fighting one another to bother you. Kegan and Tyrak were now mortal enemies. That mutual hatred is the bond that will keep our Pechenegs loyal. Two, is that the Romans had enjoyed this particular strategic dynamic for the past few centuries. In other words, the Bulgarians had been living in this area during that time, so it was they who'd had to deal with nomad raids. So the empire could 
live more comfortably being able to threaten both sides by offering assistance to the other. Now, perhaps, that dynamic could be renewed and the Romans wouldn't have to do the hard, impossible job of chasing after step riders. And three, what was the alternative? Kagan was asking for permission to come in peace. If that was refused, he wasn't going to turn around and go home. He couldn't. He was a marked man. So he was coming into the empire one way or another. Do you want him as a friend or a foe? During the summer of 1046, the decision seemed to have paid off. Kegan led his men back across the river and raided his former homeland. He brought his captured slaves to the Danube and sold them to the Romans. Protecting the frontier and bringing in more slaves? What more could you ask from your new border patrol? Well, there was a downside to this. The Pechenegs across the river were being directly provoked. The policy of paying them off had brought peace for the past decade. Now they had every reason to attack the empire. Understandably, Tyrak sent word to Monomachos that he was not happy. This was surely in contravention of the peace between them and an insult to his dignity. But the Vasilevs refused to do anything about it. Having accepted Kegan into the empire, he had to back him. The results were predictable. When the Danube froze around New Year, Tyrak's Pechenegs crossed into Roman territory. They began attacking fortified sites and ravaging the countryside. We are told that this was also a migration of about 80,000 people. We know that these Pechenegs also brought their families and possessions with them, but it's difficult to know how accurate all these numbers are. Monomachos ordered three different imperial army groups to converge on the new arrivals and asked Kegan to advise how best to take them down. Fortunately for the Romans, the Pechenegs succumbed to dysentery. While on the march, this was a perennial problem for nomads entering the Balkans, the need to camp in close quarters, allowing disease to run riot. Imperial forces surrounded them, and Tyrak agreed to surrender. Presumably, the chieftain had also wanted to migrate to Romania to escape the pressures of the steppe. We are told that Kegan advised the Romans to just slaughter Tyrak's followers. A brutal suggestion which might have prevented further trouble, but that was not Monomachos's style. Instead, the emperor disarmed and settled the Pechenegs throughout the Balkans. In particular, large numbers were sent to the river valley between Nis and Serdica in Bulgaria. This was farmland that had become depopulated during Basil's wars and was a heavily forested region i.e. the sort of environment where the steppe lifestyle was impractical. On paper, this was a series of good news stories for the Romans. Kegan looked a handy watchdog in the north, and Bulgarian nationalism would be further diluted by the new arrivals, who would also provide extra tax revenue for the state. 
But as I'm sure most of you have figured out by now, this is all going to end badly. Pechenegg communities are now spread out across the northern Balkans, most of them unhappy about this change of lifestyle and still loyal to their tribal leaders. Tyrak and his senior men were taken to Constantinople and baptised, but they were far from being loyal Romans yet. So far, Constantine IX had done an admirable job of defending the empire. He'd seen off a Rus' invasion, a steppe migration, and annexed new territory in the east. That was about as much as some emperors achieved in a lifetime. Yet he'd only been on the throne for five years, and there were still plenty of men who felt that they should be sitting in his place. One of those men was a senior military commander and second cousin of the emperor's, Leo Tornikios. Tornikios was from Adrianople and had a base of support in the Macedonian theme. The fact that Leo was on friendly terms with one of Monomachos's sisters raised eyebrows, and when the whispers became a little too loud, the emperor was forced to intervene. In spring 1047, Leo was arrested and forced into a monastery at the capital while his officers were brought to heel. There seems to have been a lot of discontent amongst the European troops. This perhaps stems from the fact that they were fighting the Pechenegs while their colleagues were off in Armenia. Had they been allowed to slaughter the nomads, they would have captured and sold off thousands of slaves and gone home with full pockets. Which is what they perceived their colleagues at Annie were busy doing. Instead, they had been asked to settle the barbarians peacefully and gained nothing by their regular pay. Grumbling continued all summer, and by September a group of officers determined to do something about it. They travelled to Constantinople and busted Tornikios out of his confinement. The group fled to Adrianople, stealing or injuring all the horses on the public post as they went. When they arrived at the theme HQ, they spread rumours that Monomachos was dead and that Leo was the obvious choice to replace him. Apparently, the troops in the area didn't need a lot of convincing. Only one town held out against the rebels as they marched unopposed towards the land walls. The first Monomachos heard about this was a stream of terrified citizens rushing into the city, clutching their valuables. Tornikios did not have cash on hand to pay his army, and so his men simply ransacked houses and farms as they moved south through Thrace. The people of Constantinople were instantly flooded with negative messages about Tornikios, who otherwise might have proved a popular candidate for the top job. This may have been a crucial factor in what followed. Despite already dealing with a string of high-stakes crises, this was the worst situation that Constantine IX had found himself in. Tornikios had the backing of the European Tachmata, meaning aside from the imperial bodyguards, there were no troops between the rabble and the city. 
Any loyal forces in the Balkans would take far too long to reach the capital, and the eastern armies were well over 300 miles away at Antioch and Annie. The Vasilevs frantically sent word to Iacetes and the other commanders to come to his aid, but he knew that they wouldn't arrive in time to man the walls. So he turned to the people. A citizen militia was quickly formed, and it was they who would have to stand atop the Theodosian defences and face down the professional soldiers of the West. As we'll talk about next episode, Monomachos was suffering badly from gout and other afflictions by this point, and so those around him often kept him safe on top of pillows and comfy mattresses in the palace. But this wouldn't do during a siege. The emperor needed to be seen, not only to inspire loyalty amongst the people, but also to shut down any rumours that he died, which, as we just heard, were easily spread in the medieval world. The emperor made the uncomfortable journey to the palace at Flachernae on the northern section of the walls and made sure he was prominent on a balcony as often as possible. He also ordered catapults and other stone throwers to be dragged up onto the parapets to give his makeshift defence force the ability to send confidence-boosting pot shots at the enemy forces. Tornikios arrived before the walls, and his credentials as emperor were yelled out by his own men who were in battle array. There was no attempt to attack the fortifications, Instead, the troops tried to convince the defenders that they should open the gates. Soldiers began singing rude songs about Monomachos, accompanied by lewd dancing. They shouted funny slogans and performed little skits at his expense. The more serious amongst the rebels made the case that their commander was an experienced soldier, a far better leader to have on the throne during these troubled times, than the civilian Monomachos. So far, the defenders were unmoved by these performances and booed Leo as he rode up and down the walls. But the jibes about the emperor's lack of military experience clearly got to his inner circle, who foolishly decided to send some men outside of the wall for a sortie. This improvised force dug a ditch and attempted to use it as a stockade from which to shoot down onrushing troops. But, predictably, the professional soldiers slaughtered them, and as the survivors fled for the gates, the defenders of that section of the wall abandoned their position in a panic. We're told that Leo did not want his men rushing in and slaughtering the people, and so did not pursue this God-sent opportunity. But perhaps he didn't realise that the gate had been abandoned. Selos, who was up in the palace watching with horror, had the better perspective on events. Once the gate was shut again, Tornikios sent a group of prisoners up to the walls. This was an interesting carrot-and-stick tactic. These were loyalists who he'd captured, and as they stood, drawn swords at their back, the defenders could picture their own predicament should the general find a way past them. 
But then the prisoners were set free and shouted out what a merciful ruler Leo would make if the defenders would only let him in. But it was all to no avail. As we'll talk about next week, Monomachos was a very generous emperor. His people-pleasing had paid dividends, and the people were happy with his treatment of them. They refused to budge for the rebel. As the first eastern troops began to trickle into the city, Leo's supporters started to lose hope. Each morning he would be greeted with the news that more men had defected in the night, slipping out of camp and knocking on the city gates to join the emperor. To prevent further seepage, Tonikios ordered his army to move west. They had spent a week at the capital's walls, but now they had to hope that someone inside the city would turn on Monomachos. The rebels headed for Rydestos, the only Thracian town which had refused to support them. They tried to storm the walls, but failed, further eroding Leo's image. Soon the army of Bulgaria arrived from the west, loyal to the emperor, and began skirmishing with the rebels. Meanwhile, Michael Iacetes finally reached the capital with some of the eastern cavalry. Things looked bleak for Leo, and eventually he and his chief lieutenant fled for the sanctuary of a church near Adrianople. Their supporters were given an amnesty, but the two men were dragged out of the church and blinded on Christmas Day, 1047. Tornikios's rebellion was an even greater threat than Maniaki's had been. It involved senior officers and the cream of the empire's western field army. This was the first time that a major part of the military establishment had turned on their emperor since Basil's wars with the two Bardases some fifty years earlier. Definitely not what the empire needed, while the Pechenegs and Normans were gestating inside the empire and the Turks were just about to start knocking on the door. But Tornikios's rebellion is also interesting for another reason. After all, it was hardly much of a military event. The Western troops had no interest in storming the walls. They knew better than that. And despite the one foolish attempt, the people had no interest in fighting professional soldiers. Instead, the two sides stood facing one another and fought another kind of campaign. An election campaign. What else would we call the tactics used by Leo's supporters to win over the defenders on the wall? They shouted his credentials. They criticised his opponent. They sang songs and performed sketches. They got individuals to speak about the change that Leo had made in their lives. It's another example in Antony Caldellus's argument that Byzantium had a republican character rather than an imperial one. Now, of course, the reason this contest took place the way it did was because of the impregnable nature of the land walls. But note the content of these husting speeches. No one argued that Leo was God's candidate, or that Monomachos was a heretic, nor did the legitimacy of either man come up in terms of their bloodlines. Instead, the arguments made were all political all about self-interest and who would be the better and more popular leader. 
Yet again, though, Monomachos had survived, showing himself to be a capable politician who could master the natural strengths of Constantinople's position against all comers. Next time, we'll take a look at the emperor's domestic political program and see why the people were so willing to stand behind him and whether or not that was a good thing. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.